0: Let's see if y'all have been paying attention. What book are we starting today? The The Bible book. That's right. It's going to be this one. Yeah. That's it. Somewhere in the Bible book, we're going to find the book of Nehemiah. Okay. We'll start there. All right. How about that? Thank you, Brother Stewart. I mean, always on time. All right. Nehemiah. Anybody ever um really wanted to do a work for God? Or better yet, do a work with God? Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, I tell you what. I do. I think most of you do, and that's why you're here. Amen. I think about some New Testament verses to to that to doing Work with God, being involved in what God's doing. I think about the first verse, the verses I think about is John 15. And what's the key there? What's the key thought there in John 15, the beginning of that chapter? If ye abide in me, and I in you, right? It's that abiding. Okay, it's abiding in Christ. That's going to be a key, right? If you're going to produce any fruit or much fruit, then there's going to have to be an abiding. I think about Galatians 2.20, right? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, right? And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. By the faith of the Son of God, amen? Amen. So don't get that backwards, but the key there is abiding in Christ, Christ doing the work through us. Colossians 1.27, uh, the end of that verse says that, that Christ in you, talking to the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there is there is a work that God is doing, and He's doing it through His people. And through His people that abide in Him, His people that, that uh, surrender to Him, that allow Him to do the work in them and through them. Right or right? Amen? I help you with the hard ones. Remember that, all right? So, uh, this man that we're going to study here, Nehemiah, and his book, his recording here of his life and, and what God did during this time... He, he is an example of this, and this is before the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person for an act of service, okay? And, uh, and certainly the Holy Spirit is involved here, and you see this. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, and here's the key. At the end of that verse, it says this phrase, the good hand of my God was upon me. Why was Nehemiah able to accomplish what he accomplished? There's the reason. And he repeats it again over in verse 18. Again, it says, then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me. Amen. So if anything good's gonna happen, it's gonna happen because God is gonna do it. Amen. He's going to do it in us. He's going to do it through us. And so let's see what ne- how, what we can learn from Nehemiah's life Amen. as far as how did he get in a position for God to be able to use him in this way. And I think there is a lot that we can learn here, and certainly there's a lot to challenge us to being available to God. And so we're going to set the, get the setting started today, introduce the book, maybe get in through the first few verses... But when you start looking at the book of Nehemiah, uh, you have to ask your question, I guess, first of all, how did we get here? Amen. So let's read the first verse here of the of the book, and it says the word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It says, And it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in in the twentieth year, I was in Shushan the palace. So What's he doing in Shushan? And how did he get there? Why is he there? They're in captivity. They've been taken over. Why? Their sin. Their continual, repeated, turning away from God. Refusing to acknowledge Him in every area of their life, and obey Him. And because of that, God let them go into captivity. Amen? God raised up some more wicked people than themselves. To take them over amen and this didn't happen okay now it it didn't happen at at one time well let's 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 just lay the time frame here i have gave you some dates in here i got this from john phillips book and and i think this helps us kind of lay out what what all is going on but this invasion okay into babylon you can see there happened in five uh excuse me uh, that, that's Cyrus. That This chart will not cover what had the uh, when Babylon, Babylon came into Judah and took them over. The first invasion of Babylon occurred in 605 B.C. when Jehoiakim was king. Now, y'all remember before that there was a king named Hezekiah. Now, remember, Hezekiah was a good king, right? But he had a few problems, like most of us, okay? I don't know about y'all. Certainly up here, for sure. So his problem was mainly he'd get high-minded and he'd forget about God. And matter of fact, he was on his deathbed, but God had mercy on him because he humbled himself and gave him 15 additional years. Y'all remember that? Well, after that, then he makes another critical error. And I think again, because of his pride. And so these ambassadors from Babylon come in and, and, uh, boy, he just shows them everything. Shows them all the, all the jewels and the gold and the silver and man, every, all of his goods. God's given them. And then Isaiah comes to him and says, what did you show them? I showed them everything. He's like, he prophesies right then and tells them they're going to come here and they're going to take that stuff. But it won't be in your lifetime. And the bad, the sad thing is Hezekiah, he just, well, it's good that it's not in my lifetime. Man, I think we need to be thinking generational, don't y'all? What kind of person just thinks that? Oh, well, I don't have to worry about it. No, that's a bad, bad answer. But, because of that, yeah, Babylonian, uh, the Babylonians do come and, and, King Nebuchadnezzar in, in 605 BC and they have the first, uh, deportation that occurs and I think that's Daniel is involved in that first and some other princes in the, in the best of, of the best of, of the, of Judah. And then again, it happens in 597, they come back and they take some other people jehoachin is now the king and and ezekiel is involved in this second uh, deportation time but then finally when king zedekiah is on the throne in judah i tell you what he gets a great idea let's team up with egypt okay and we'll rebel against babylon and we'll we'll team up with egypt and egypt will protect us bad idea pitiful pitiful how how weak and anemic is Judah at this time, considering that the omnipotent God is their God? It's pitiful, isn't it? So they, trust, they won't trust God. They're going to trust Egypt. And so the Babylonians decide that's enough of that. And when they come in this time, they wipe it out. And they destroy it. And they take the temple down to nothing. They totally destroy the temple and uh, and they set them under siege before they do that it's just a horrible uh, events that happen uh, what a what a black and dark time in the nation of of Israel that occurs during that time so, then they're, they're into captivity, and, and guess who comes? Uh, you know, the Cyrus is the king. He comes of, of uh, Medo-Persian Empire. The Persian Empire comes to Babylon. They take it over in 539. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 5, right? Y'all remember that? Belshazzar and his drunken state in the party, and Daniel comes in, and and, and the hand just writes on the wall. Y'all remember that? And then, sure enough, that night, they're coming down as they're having that meeting, and they take them over. They destroy the mighty nation of Babylon. And so now the Persians are in control and Cyrus is the king. Amen? Y'all still with me? Well, interesting thing about Cyrus. Let's turn to uh, Isaiah. Hold your place in Nehemiah, but let's go to the right a little bit. Let's go to Isaiah. Verse 44. One hundred and seventy years... Before Cyrus enters into Babylon, Isaiah gets this word from the Lord. We're in chapter 44 of Isaiah. Look at verse 28. The Word of God says, That saith of Cyrus, God calls him by name, 170 years before he's going to do the act. It says, Whose right hand I have broken to subdue nations... I have holden, excuse me, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two left gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Amen? And then he goes on again down at the end of the next verse, and it says, I, the Lord, which calleth thee by name, am the God of Israel. Amen? So that's who's going to do it. He's going to do it through Cyrus. He's going to bring down Babylon and uh, so it was announced and, and by, by the Lord 170 years before it happened. Amen. Don't you love the Word of God? Don't you love when the Lord gives you just those little nuggets of time? He doesn't tell us everything in advance, but He tells us what we need to know in advance. Amen. And um, And so this is interesting, too, because, you know, when you think about Cyrus here being a Gentile king, and Nebuchadnezzar was called the servant of Jehovah in Jeremiah chapter 25, which is, is very interesting in itself, and 27 as well. And, it said, and it, this designation here, if you look at Cyrus, it says that he is my shepherd in verse 28. Now, that, that's shocking. It's, 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 all, it's a messianic title here given to a Gentile king Which is absolutely almost hard to imagine. But the points that he is like the the Lord Jesus. Think about this for a second. The points that he is like the Lord Jesus. Number one. Both are irresistible conquerors of Israel's enemies. Amen. And number two. It says that both are restorers of the holy city. Yes, we're about to read and study about that. And then number three. Through both. Is the name of the one true God glorified. Amen. So there's some, there's some likeness in Cyrus to the Lord Jesus. Now go back to Nehemiah. <clears throat> Y'all still with me? So Cyrus and the Persians are now in Jerusalem. They are now in charge. Amen. And so in, in 538, he's going to give the decree for Jews to go back to rebuild Jerusalem, saying, hey, you guys are free to go, go home, and and rebuild your city. Well, that was must have been an exciting day, right? And it was an exciting day. And by the way, who's going to lead them is Zerubbabel, okay? And he's actually a prince. <clears throat> Matter of fact, hold your place one more time and go to Matthew chapter 1. Hold your place, we're coming back. Zerubbabel. Did you know he's of the tribe of Judah? Did you know he's in the line of David? Did you know that he is mentioned in the lineage of Christ? We'll see it right here in verse 11, that's Matthew chapter 1. And Josias and Jehonanias and his brethren, about the time that they were carried away to Babylon, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jehonanias Beget Shalatiel, and Shalatiel beget Zorobobol. Okay, so it's like Zoro, Z-O-R-O, instead of the Z-E-R-U that we see in the Old Testament. Why is that? Why are names sometimes different? You can go back to Nehemiah. They're different because they're different languages. So in other words, we got John, and then if it's Spanish, it's Juan, right? And then if it's Russian, it's Ivan, I think you know what I'm saying. So I mean, yeah, there's sometimes the name it looks a little different, but we're talking about the same man here. He's in the line of Christ. And he's sent back by Cyrus the King of Persia to go into Babylon. And he takes a small group of people with him. And what's his purpose? His purpose is to rebuild the temple. So he lays the temple foundation in in 536. And then there's this crazy 16-year break. Sixteen years. They lay the foundation, and then there's stoppage. Why was there stoppage? This is a great contrast here between Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. Because they both got the typical situation. If you're going to do anything with the Lord, if the Lord's doing anything, is there going to be any opposition? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So what happened to him? He got opposition. The Samaritans, Samaritans they were causing him trouble and he, he's having uh, uh th- this and that and they're even taking him to court back in Persia and so he just stops. But you know what didn't stop? The Israelites didn't stop building their own houses. Matter of fact, turn, hold your place there. We're going to turn a few places so we get this t- context. Turn to Haggai. During the time... But we're going to be studying here in Nehemiah. And even before Nehemiah, Nehemiah hasn't come on the scene yet here. It hasn't gone yet. But but you're going to see there are two prophets that are working and preaching and doing the will of God during this time. And one is Haggai and the other is Zechariah. <coughs> Excuse me. So look at this right here. Let's look at um, verse 2. It says... Thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. It's not the time to build the Lord's house. Verse 3. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for you, O ye, to dwell in your chiseled houses, and in this house lie waste. Turn back. Amen. What's the problem? Well, they're taking care of their own business. They're not taking care of God's business. Okay? Who's who's first here? In order. Are they their folk? Are they seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or are they seeking their own? And so Haggai calls them out by the word of the Lord. The Lord uses Haggai to get their attention, to shake them back into reality, and guess what happens? The work starts again. And then in four years later, they finish it in five sixteen. Now the temple is restored. Is the temple the same as the temple that Solomon built? No. Is it better? No. Matter of fact, in the book of Haggai and, and another place in the Bible where where God says, Hey, bring out the old men and show them. I want to see what they have to say about this, because they remembered the other temple. And they wept and they cried, because it wasn't it wasn't the same. But they do complete it. And so that time frame now, if you remember, turn to <laughs> turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 25. Y'all still with me? Okay, Jeremiah chapter 25. It takes a little while to lay the foundation, and once we get it laid, we'll be here for a while. Chapter 25. Jeremiah, of course, preaching here uh, before the captivity, and look what he says in chapter twenty-five, verse eleven. It says, "And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon how many years? Seventy years." Verse 12, and it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that the nation saith the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolation. Going back to Nehemiah. So that 70 years is up somewhat, I guess, for scholars and Bible teachers to debate over, but it appears that it fits... It fits at least for the most commonly understood dates to be the final destruction of Israel in the temple and the completion of the temple in, uh, in in Zerubbabel's time. Okay. So if you look at that, you see that the temp, that the final uh, destruction of Israel was in 586 BC. The finished work of the temple was in 516 BC. So that fits the seventy years. That may be what Jeremiah what God was saying through Jeremiah. Some believe it also uh, had to do with uh, the the initial invasion and some other time when when He started to send them back. So some of the dates are, you know. I can't get dogmatic on that because I'm not sure, but that seems to be the best explanation to me. But nonetheless, God said it was going to happen. He said exactly how long it would be. And then He said what would happen. He destroyed Babylon, and then He would put them back in their place. And so, uh, put put Israel back. Now, the question is this. From how many people went back? How, did everybody go back when they had the freedom to go back? No. Very few went back. And so then, we have another return, okay, that occurs in 458 B.C. led by Ezra. Now, Zerubbabel was a prince. Ezra is a priest. He's of the tribe of Levi. What's going to be his work when he gets there? Zerubbabel was sent to rebuild the temple, and he did. And so now we get Ezra. What do you think his work's going to be? Where's he going to do his work? He's going to do his work on the hearts of the people. Amen, and he's going to do his work with the Word of God, amen. And you're going to see that in his book. And but the book of Ezra actually covers the first um, seven, six or seven chapters. I think verse six chapters covers uh, Zerubbabel's time, and then there's the last part of the book covers Ezra's time. And interesting, in between there, there's a huge gap. Things like fifty something years in between there. So sometimes you know you ever read the Bible and all of a sudden you think the verses just continue on and then there's this huge gap in between. There's like 50 something years between those two chapters. Time that elapsed. Okay? So but Ezra's going to come. Ezra's going to come and do his work. He's he's going to work in the people's hearts. And uh and then of course our man that we're going to study here Nehemiah. And Nehemiah arrives actually in Jerusalem In 444 B.C., that's 94 years from the time that Cyrus said you can go back. 94 years. Man, what would happen Brother John to a good Texan now if he got exiled and they said you can go back to Texas? Would it take us 94 years to get back? What about how much more so the people of God? Because He had a promise. They had a promise in this land. This was their land. God gave it to them. They're supposed to dwell there. Matter of fact, the, the promise is conditional on dwelling in the land. And so, but they're not interested. Why do you think they're not interested? Huh? Boy, they got comfortable. And what else? what else they got? What Jews usually do. They got wealthy. They got prosperous. Why in the world would I want to give up this good job to go to the mission field when I'm making all this money? Why would I want to give up the cushy work that I've got now and in the, in the lifestyle to go rebuild a city? Start all over again. Why would I want to do that? You know, I think a lot of times today I think You know, God hasn't stopped calling missionaries. Sometimes people just stop listening. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think God's still in the business of people getting saved. And I just think there's less listening. And I think the problem is we got the same problem that the Israelites had is that we're comfortable and we're making money. And so we're happy where we are. I think about some of our missionaries, Brother Roger. I think about, you may remember this, Brother. I know you read his newsletter, Brother Star, that has the ministry over in uh, India and, and those areas over there. And, you know, if you remember when he came through here, he was—he had his own business. He was doing well, making a lot of money. And uh, and then God called him to the mission field. He sold his business, and he financed the mission himself until he ran out of money. And then he went on deputation. After he spent all of his money and already done it, God had used him mightily. Then he said, man, I'm out of money. I'm going to (laughs) have to get somebody to help. Brother John, you got a question? Comment? Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's, there's entanglements, right? And that what Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, anybody that's going to serve uh, the, the Lord, he said, if you're going to be a soldier, a good soldier, you're going to endure hardness, he says, you're going to have to untangle yourself from the world because it gets tangled. And that doesn't mean, now, hey, look, this is a different time. They had different requirements there as far as marrying outside uh, there. And, and Paul clarifies that just for sake of conversation here in case something get in your mind. Paul clarified that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that if a man's married to an unbeliever, what's he to do? Stay married. Now, if they leave, that's different. But now, absolutely, you're not supposed to, no, not leave that. That's different, okay? So, just keep that in some balance there. And so, Nehemiah now, is we had Zerubbabel as a prince, we had Ezra as a priest, now we got Nehemiah, you know, he's a politician. That's what he is, he serves in a political office. He's like the cupbearer and the bodyguard and advisor of the king. He's got a very powerful position, which we're going to see when we start getting into his life. But let me ask you something. Can you still be a politician and actually serve God? Is it possible? Is it possible to still put God first and to be a politician and even serve Maybe an ungodly government? Is it still possible? It's unlikely, but definitely possible. Matter of fact, God specifically calls certain people to do that. You know, I appreciate Brother Brad Wells, our missionary to Washington, D.C. Boy, what a horrible place to have to serve, in my opinion. Seems like it'd just be a terrible place. Not only a lot of darkness, a lot of, uh, uh, of, of wickedness and, and uh, evil spirits and demons to deal with. But then you got to deal with the politicians, you know, the, and the people that work in politics, you know. But boy, God's using him there, you know, and God gives grace for the place. And, uh, and certainly he has Nehemiah here in this place for a reason. So let's go back book of Nehemiah. Any other questions about that? I hope I made it at least kind of as clear as semi-muddy water. Hey, I got those dates to kind of refer to that. But, you know, when you're studying the book of Nehemiah, those other books that we talked about, especially the book of Haggai, but uh, the book of Zechariah and the book of Ezra, those books are helpful. When you look at the chronological order, okay, so there's... Uh, the Nehemiah is the last of the historical books, as best I can tell, okay? So even though Esther comes after it in the order of, of the books in the Bible... Historically, Esther comes before it. And so, let's look at verse 2. So, we see him in the palace. We see him serving a Persian king here. And then we get verse 2. It says, "...that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. Well, I'll tell you something. We know that Nehemiah here has a focus on the things of God because he asked. He actually inquired into what was going on at home. He's like, hey, I'm tied up here. How are things back at the house? How's the homeland? How's the brethren? He wants to know. You know, and if we're really, if we start seeking the kingdom of God, if we put God at the forefront of our focus, you know, we'll start asking some things, too. We'll start asking people sometimes about, do you know the Lord? Would you come to church? You know what I found out, Brother Roger? People aren't quite as adversarial as you think they are if you just ask them. Most of them, if you, if you—if I, when I actually stood, recently tried to give out a few more tracks. And I and I appreciate when Brother Kevin's here because he's always so good at this. But um, and I'm always embarrassed when I don't have a track on me and he's giving somebody a track. But uh, but you know people are receptive. You know the media makes you think that everybody's you know ungodly and is going to get offended, but they don't. I, it's been a long time since had anybody get offended. You know and, and, and you know I ask a guy and some people are actually honest, which is shocking. I asked a young man at Tractor Supply the other day if he knew anything about Jesus Christ, and he said, "No, not really." I said, "Man, thank you for being honest." I said, "Man, here's an invite to church. Here's a track." Now, when I said, "When I was your age, I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ either," but when I was thirty years old, I found out, and I got saved, gave my life to Christ. You know, and, and uh, I like to go to the feed store and witness because I don't know if you guys ever go to the feed store. But working at the fee store is hard work, and the guys turn over there real rapidly. So almost every time you go, it's like a new person to talk to. You give them a try because uh, they they don't last very long there. Most people don't like to work that hard, but um, uh, for that probably for what they get paid, especially. But they they're not they're not as closed minded as you think, Amen. And so I think we need to be asking that. We need to ask them people, but when we also look when he when when we need to be asking God. We need to be asking God, and then, like for instance, how do we ask God? We ask God in prayer for things all the time, right? We're even told to do that in the New Testament to ask God if, we, if, if we, not to be careful for anything, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. right or right? But when we ask God, are we willing, and it is the first place that we look, is inside to see if we can be the answer to our prayer? Do we ever, because when Nehemiah, when he hears this, he's going to have a wonderful prayer. We're going to see that, okay? And certainly, but I think automatically, almost instantly, he feels the burden, and then what? He feels the responsibility. You see? It's one thing just to feel the burden, but not feel the responsibility. Look at what happens here in verse 3. So, Nehemiah hears the the terrible news. His heart's broken. He weeps and he mourns. But look at where he does this. Look what it says. He says, before the end of verse 4, before the God of heaven. So, Nehemiah, because he's sensitive to God's heart, God's grieved over this. Nehemiah's grieved over this. uh, His perspective now is... Lord, it's not what you want. What can I do to fix it? Because he knows, actually, you know, God equips people. He puts people in certain positions in power so that they can do a certain work for him that other people might not be able to do. Some people have certain types of personalities that they're going to work really well in certain areas, Right? Yes or yes. And we all have our areas of influence, don't we? Within our families, within our friends, on a, on a job or wherever it may be. And so here he is. He's in the palace. We see the person uh, of Nehemiah as being a person that's concerned about the things of God, that he is godly. He has his mind on the things of God and the people of God. And then we see that all of a sudden this trouble comes his way, the problem. So we see the person, we see then we see now the, the place he's at, and now we see the problem. Let me tell you what I think about problems a lot of times. We got the wrong perspective on problems. We got the perspective from self, not the perspective from, of God. You know what I mean? So whenever we run into trouble, we're always thinking about how this is affecting me. And that's probably normal, okay, to some degree. But are we also thinking ahead of that is how is this going to glorify God? Because you understand problems many times are opportunities. They're opportunities, right? And what kind of opportunities are they? Opportunities to glorify God, number one, right? Opportunities maybe for us to learn some things about ourselves. Opportunities for us to maybe increase our faith as we see God do something that would have never happened if it hadn't have been for the problem that God allowed to come our way. And unfortunately, when we get the self perspective, then we tend to miss that, and then we tend to get the poochie lip, throw the pity party, which nobody comes to, and they don't. Nobody brings gifts, right? Okay, and and then we start to murmur, we start to murmur and complain against God, not directly. Maybe you know what I'm saying? You know, we're not. We wouldn't do that. Just behind, kind of subtly. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, like God's, God's my father, but then I got all these things that are happening that, you know what I'm saying, are terrible and, I, and God's not meeting my needs and He's not taking care of me. Or, and like God's not in control or God's not all powerful or like God's not all knowing. Like He's not your father. If you had a good father, isn't He going to provide everything you need? And sometimes He's providing it through that trouble, just so you learn to walk with Him closer. Sometimes He's delivering you from that trouble so you can see His power and His ability. And all the time, He's putting you on display so that other people can see God working in you so that they might get drawn to the Savior. They might be strengthened or encouraged in their faith. Right? All right, right. That's the way God does it. I mean, He works on multiple fronts at the same time. And I know you're sitting there going, eh, it's easy for you to teach that, Brother Lewis, because you don't have any trouble in your life. you don't know what's going on in people's lives. You only see on the surface. And what you're going to see here is that Nehemiah, he's broken before God. He's weeping. But you know what he does the next day? He Puts on his big boy pants, and he goes to work. And he serves the king. And he does it with joy, with happiness, for about four months. Until one day his sorrow leaks out in the providence of God. But he doesn't go around like God's dead. He doesn't go around like God's no longer my God. He just goes on with his life and carries this burden before God. And he waits on God to fix it. Fix him, to fix it, or to do whatever God's going to do to get glory. He's just waiting on God. I think we need to repent of our unbelief. I think we, unbelief is our is our hindrance here. We just won't believe God. Maybe our murmuring and our complaining. God is faithful. He will take care of us. And we'll see more next week. We're going to have to stop there. We'll pick up next week. And we'll look at um, the providence of God. And how God comes in at right on time. Amen. We'll study the rest of chapter 1. And uh, begin chapter 2. Maybe Lord willing next week. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you for the Spirit of God and as our teacher. Pray, God, now that these these, uh, words that you've given us, Lord, have effect in our life. For Jesus' sake we do pray. Amen.